0: All right, so welcome to the 10th uh, online environmental uh, humanities book talk that we uh, organize here through the greenhouse at University of Stavanger. So we started this uh, at the beginning of the coronavirus lockdown as a way of not only maintaining the, the communities we had uh, in environmental humanities, but also to, to extend them and, uh, and forge new connections with things going on elsewhere in the world. Uh, And and that's worked out quite well. So today we are happy to have um, actually two presenters uh, who co-authored a a book uh, together. So we have Christine Erickson, Senior Lecturer in Geography, and Susan Ballard, uh, Senior Lecturer in Art and History from the University of Wollongong in Australia. So we also have a somewhat different crowd than usual uh, with uh, the Australian group. So we're very happy to, to be able to connect with those people too. Uh, so I will just leave the screen over to you.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks to Dolly and Finn Anna for inviting us here. It's um really excited to be able to finally launch our book out into a global audience, out into the world. Um thank you to you all for joining us here in the Southern Hemisphere. Christine and I are talking to you from Darylwell Country on the east coast of Australia about. 80 kilometres south of Sydney, and we acknowledge the Wadiwadi Wadi people and the Aboriginal elders of this country, past, present, and future. In our short introduction, Christine and I will introduce some of the thinking behind our book. I will discuss the approaches we took as we wove together our two disciplines of human geography and art history to tell the story of living with plants and fire. Then Christine is going to present a case study excerpt. And after this, we're really keen to talk with you further. Living in Australia, we cannot help but know that we live on fiery country. When driving, a smoky haze might cloud the windscreen, or a sharp smell might enter through the air conditioning, inviting a quick flick to the New South Wales Rural Fire Service's Fires Near Me app. A flick of reassurance, but also a measure of alertness. Fire in Australia cannot be ignored nor taken for granted. Fire, though, is a part of the whole planetary environment. Atmospheric transformations resulting from anthropogenic climate change mean that natural cycles of ruin and regrowth that existed long before fire was harnessed by humans are also transforming. Bushfire and its seasonal cycles are also becoming more unpredictable, unknown and unfamiliar. We know that there will be more fires, that these fires will be more ferocious and catastrophic. Yet humans have coexisted with fire and plants on this country for 60,000 years. We wondered if exploring a set of alliances between fire plants and people might help us look to the future. The alliances between people, plants and fire have deep roots that connect the past with the present. Would these roots extend into the future in a world full of unnatural disasters? So this book is an exploration of how these alliances form. We think together about the agency, And interdependencies of the human and non-human, trees and insects, fire and rain, wind and atmospheric particles, soil and plants, climate, and material ecologies. We place conversations with people who have experienced bushfires, alongside thoughts and ideas found within contemporary art about alliances, both real and imagined. Each chapter of the book is a twist of a kaleidoscope. Between experiences of grief, humility, hope, and renewal, we find narratives of world-making, storying, ruin, and regrowth, which provide insights into how relationships come to be and are likely to change in the Anthropocene. It might seem easy for an artist to represent a catastrophic event and then walk away. It might be easier than for a resident to turn their back on a smoldering home. But what if walking away is no longer an option? To answer this question, we place together ways of looking at and visualizing the world with embodied narratives in the context of climate change marked by intense firestorms. We present not just an imagined world where inanimate and animate become blurred, but a multi-species understanding of world-making. People, plants, and fire, and all their bodies of knowing, breathing, seeing, and being are
0: tumbled together. Our exploration
1: of alliances pointed us to a deeper collaboration that expanded the disciplinary range of the social sciences and environmental humanities by employing methodologies from both human geography and art history. In chapter two of the book, Illuminations, photographer Rosemary Langs constructed image of a domesticated forest environment lingers alongside descriptions of devastation and acceptance and in chapter three illustrations we think about how the direct experience and collective memory of fire enables us to consider what nigel clark calls the rhythms and extremes of the earth in chapter four impressions a form of multi-species world making is evident at multiple temporal and spatial scales. And in chapter five, imprints, a form we find ourselves tracing the way that human, power, plant and fire alliances make worlds as well as tell stories of these worlds. Even environments that have not wit- wit- witnessed recent trauma, plants take on an everyday emotive role, absorbing the complex atmospheres of everyday life. So, the ecological aesthetics that pervade this book emerge quietly from human experiences of self and others, as well as from diverse relationships with human and non-human beings. Weaving its way through branches, twisting around and under things, objects, and behaviors, this aesthetic is an energy that helps us to think about the creative work that is necessary for life in the Anthropocene. We look to 37 artworks that do not present answers, nor behave as illustrations but work that suggests ways of understanding, knowing and imagining the world. Our aim is to stay local, to consider how thinking about plants, fire and people together gives us a means to understand world making at all scales. Our case studies are mostly situated in the liminal zone between urban, bush and forest environments in Australia. However, In chapter six, we specifically explore global contexts of human plants and fire together. And Christine is now going to present a case study from this chapter. We're going to
2: share a case study from chapter six titled Impermanence, Elemental Forces because it demonstrates how our respective work expanded and grew in new and unforeseen directions through our interdisciplinary collaboration. After working with fire for many years, the artwork in this chapter prompted me to think about fire in a new and unprecedented way in the form of nuclear fire and wildfires burning in areas contaminated by radiation. I want to provide a brief consideration of the long histories between fire, plants and people. To do so, I'm going to use the metaphor of a kaleidoscope, a metaphor that plays a central role in our book. With each twist, a kaleidoscope shifts the internal mechanisms of the mirrors inside. It refracts and reflects light to create patterns And in this way, it metaphorically demonstrates how fire plants and people are tumbled together in environments that they both change and are changed by. I'll make three twists with the kaleidoscope. My starting point is Australia, but I'll move outward via the atmosphere to Japan and the former USSR in what is now Ukraine. The first look through the kaleidoscope is a look at the millennial-old Aboriginal eco-cultural burning practices used to care for country in Australia. With the help of fire, people sustain country and country in turn sustains people. The harnessing of fire is arguably what made us human. While fire is a good servant, it is a terrifying master. Fire may benefit from people as a source of ignition. However, that is the extent of fire's dependence on humans. Under catastrophic fire conditions, people are at the complete mercy of fire. This is a good point to twist the kaleidoscope again. This new look takes us to 1788 and the colonization of Australia by the British. With colonization came the suppression and exclusion of all fire from the environment, a move fueled by Eurocentric understandings of forestry management that were wholly inappropriate in Australia. This is the beginning of the build-up of fuel and the mismanagement of forests that will come back to haunt us 200 years later. Before arriving at this nightmare, however, another twist of the kaleidoscope is going to take us to the South Australian desert in the 1950s. Here, we witness people's relationship with a new type of fire, nuclear fire. This picture breaks down the perceived dominance of human agency in the Anthropocene. Humans have been a catalyst for change. We have harnessed and consumed like fire, but we have not done it alone. At 5 a.m. on the 22nd of October, 1956, the British exploded a 10 kiloton atomic bomb inside a 100 foot tower at the breakaway bomb site at Maralinga in South Australia. The explosion was so hot the desert sand was transformed into glass by the blast. What remains today is an opaque green radioactive surface of poisonous crystallized
1: desert sand. In Yoni Skersey's,
2: um, Aboriginal artist Yoni Skercy is from Woomera in South Australia and belongs to the Kakatha and Nukunu people for whom Murnong also known as yam daisy, is a traditional stable food. Between 1953 and 1963, the bomb clouds released by British testing of nuclear weapons at Maralinga drifted over her family's country. Janiske's death sapphire mimics one of the dispensing atomic clouds. The art installation is an eight meter wide suspended cloud of over a thousand white, gray and blackened glass yams. In Yannis Gezi's Blue Danube series from 2015, held in the Australian War Memorial Museum, clear hand-blown glass bombs contain the skeletal remains of yams. The yams are an opalescent black color that represents the burning of skin a black purple color that represents the landscape itself and people dying as a result of the tests. Scarce's glass bombs mimic the Blue Danube bomb, Britain's first operational atomic weapon. The Four Fins design originated from the American Fat Man atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki on the 9th of August, 1945. Japan surrendered six days later, ending World War II. Yet the end of the war was not the end of human engagement with nuclear fire. This was the start of a new era, the Atomic Age, an age marked by the proliferation of nuclear testing, such as the opening of the Maralinga test site, and a series of nuclear accidents with global and disastrous ramifications. It is these events that are now gaining traction as a formal It is these events that are now gaining traction as the formal agreed marker for the Anthropocene. For those whose land has already been destroyed, food crop contaminated and lives irreversibly impacted by the atomic age, this dating of the Anthropocene remains arbitrary at best. In Australia, the opening of the ongoing impact of nuclear testing on country are intimately connected to negotiations between the British and Australian governments. Despite superficial attempts at a cleanup by the British, access to country remains restricted at Maralinga. The consequences of the inadequate cleanup, the restricted access, and the hurt of traditional owners wishing to heal their sick country are deeply embedded in Scacy's work and the bush food that Scacy uses to tell the story of culture and tradition. This is a long form of world-making and storying, ruin and regrowth. Controlling nature but grasping the atom was the beginning of the end of discrete relationships between humans and the planet. Scarce's installations are one answer to anthropologist Anna Singh's question what kind of human disturbances can we live with? Another answer to Singh's question is provided unexpectedly by the resilient response of flora and fauna to fallout in another part of the world. The red forest straddling the border of Ukraine and Belarus, named after the ginger brown colour of the pine trees that died following the absorption of high levels of radiation from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster on 26 April 1986. In this book, we discuss in detail the response of the flora and fauna to the radioactivity in what environmental activist Bruce Sterling has termed an involuntary park. And the fear that flames from a high intensity wildfire will spread upwards from the litter on the forest floor to become a crown fire, releasing clouds of radioactive smoke particles and mineral dust currently held in the soil, bark, needles, timber and branches of living and dying trees and grasses in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Time only permits me now to mention that with the increased likelihood of wildfire due to climatic change, one of the lasting legacies of the Chernobyl disaster may extend far beyond the boundaries of the Chernobyl exclusion zone to become a new form of alliance in the Anthropocene. Climate change-induced radioactive wildfires. The terrifying thought of climate change-induced radioactive wildfire adds a whole other dimension to the growing trend of uncontrollable wildfires internationally due to climate change, the suppression of fire, and the mismanagement of forests. What Sue and I argue in our book is that it is the narratives of survivors, as well as the artworks that engage with these catastrophes that help us understand what to do next. They connect us with our place, the Alliance dependent lives of humans in the Anthropocene. Our place is a question of belonging, of home. Given the long and complex histories of fire plants and people, I will end by asking a question that confronted us many times in multiple ways while we wrote this book. Is home still home when the world around us has changed irrevocably, yet seems oddly familiar?
3: Thank you so much Sue and Christine. This was great to hear about uh, such a really relevant uh, issue ongoing but yet with a deep history um, and the ways in which we're responding and can respond and have responded to fire uh, culturally and artistically I think is a really interesting way to come at this problem. Uh, I know Finarna uh, had a question, so yeah. you can ask first, and then I see Michael on there.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, something about the process uh, and the inter- interdisciplinarity of this, uh, this project then, because as Dolly mentioned, we just did um, the clouds book as one example of this. And I think this is also one of the, the strengths of the environmental humanities as a field, how you bring together various forms of, knowledge and practices set in particular disciplines into something that becomes, I mean, hopefully something more than the sum of the parts. Uh, uh, so could you say a little bit about how you I mean, really got together uh, and how you worked together coming from two quite different fields and what you learned from it and what you gained from it?
3: So um, if you want to start, Christine, and then Sue can go after
2: that. Sure. So it was, um, it was unexpected that we came together. We at University of Wollongong have a, a particular body called um, Global Challenges, which is a funding body that um, specifically funds interdisciplinary projects across at least three faculties within the university. And I, together with another colleague, um, had put a proposal together looking at the long view of disasters. So not the customary short term view that you look on, but the long view, looking at 30, like 70, 130 years into the past and the future. And Sue was one of the collaborators on that project. And we found in this very diverse group that came together that the conversations that opened up were stimulating and really fascinating. And it was after a workshop we'd held, I read a random article on ABC News about a volunteer firefighter who also happens to be a water um, colour artist. And I sent it to Sue saying, this is really interesting. We should write something about this. And we've set out to write an essay, which then became a book.
1: I think another, so after that kind of initial, um, okay, there's a spark, there's a, there's something we can write together. The most important part of the process um, was for us to spend time together with the artworks. And also Christine's got this incredible archive of interviews with people who've experienced fires. So she kindly sort of shared that archive with me and I would sort of read these extraordinary stories and go, but this person's talking about smelling garlic burning and that kind of sensory description that they're making matches up with this kind of sensory approach to image making. Um, a very early part of the project, we were lucky enough to spend time in the storerooms of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And um, what we did, which was this really interesting coming together of our two disciplines, was that suddenly we were talking in front of the artworks together, and Christine was recording us as if we were kind of having a live interview with the artwork, it <laughs> felt like. And it was in those kind of um, recordings that we we realised we could generate a shared language for talking about, sort of talking about the past, but also talking about the future. All right, Michael,
3: you have a question, a comment.
4: Yeah, can you all hear me? Yes. Great. Um, congratulations, Sue. Congratulations, Christine. I remember hearing about this from Sue uh, at a work, uh, a work Work in Progress uh, aspect coming out of various things that were being done in Miko, which Sue has kind of st- 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 spearheaded as a collective at Wollongong in the creative arts space around environmental literature. So it's just wonderful to see it culminate. My question is, like, because in that space, Sue with a number of colleagues, including Catherine McKinnon, who I see is here, um, talked about studies and scales and wonder. Sue, you used the language of both. You, you said... Um, you talked about world moving at all scales. And I wondered where planetarity still sat for you, Spivak's concept. Uh, it seems to me that fire is scaled at the larger the small, back burning is moderately sized, whereas traditional Aboriginal burning is smaller, dealing with very controlled sustainable patches of fire. Um, so that's my sort of question to Sue. And my comment to Christine slash question is, so you put us in ni- the 1950s at Maralinga, and then you showed us those amazing uh, blackened glass yams made into bombs, and I wondered. A really specific question was: Is any of the glass made from sand? From, does it sand by any chance? Because I, I think I might have missed that. Or so those are some questions. You should mute me now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, thanks, Mike. Um, planetarity is is a concept that kind of, we don't talk about explicitly in this book, but is certainly key to a lot of the work that I've done. And um, part of what is so amazing about doing an um, interdisciplinary, but also collaborative project like this is the things that you carry along behind you that you don't necessarily put explicitly into the project. So you've identified something that I'm carrying along behind me. But I think the scale question is incredibly important. And that's why fire is so fascinating because fire doesn't just operate um, at sort of a a spatial scale, it operates in this temporal scale. And one of the concepts that we kept returning to was this idea of regrowth, that that kind of beautiful, like literally beautiful moment when everything is, is bright green. And and the the stories that people have after a fire um, about regrowth and ways of thinking forward into the future. So I think the scale that drove this project is the scale of thinking forward, thinking into the future.
0: Um, I
2: was just literally looking up as Sue was speaking um, the description that Yanni Scherzi uses to describe the installation which is hand blown glass yams nylon and steel armature as far as i know like it, the sand might have been involved but it's certainly not from maralinga because you cannot access it the sand is the radiation level of the sand is is so dangerous still that you're not allowed to go onto country there
3: All right, Uh, we have Krista wants to ask a question, so you're unmuted now. Thanks, that was wonderful. I find it so fascinating the combination of art and fire. Um, I'm a PhD student now in Australia, but have done some fire ecology work in the U.S., and there was a project in the southwestern U.S. um, called Fires of Change, where artists joined land managers and fire ecologists and they had a camp out for a few days and then spent a year collaborating on a public uh, uh, exhibition of of fire-related art. And it was really transformative for the community, for the scientists, for lots of people. And I was wondering if there has been anything like that in Australia.
2: That's a really good question. There has been different types of get togethers, particularly after fires so um, when you look at the role of art in recovery, that's more what I know of different agencies coming together in Australia. I think what was unique about the collaboration you speak about in the south um, west um, of the u s is that it was it was a, collaboration that came together both to enhance knowledge on the parts of the people there but much more specifically the broader public that would come to the exhibition and I think that's something I haven't seen in Australia that kind of wide sharing of knowledge that's literally derived from different ways of being expression expressing conversations that happen when you're out on country, like when you're out in the places that burn. And that's, I think, what is so rich and so inspiring is that once you actually have those tactile elements like the wood and the sand, the mud, the dust, the ash, um, and you see that in artwork too, right? The ashes are the most amazing a product to make art with and so you have these much more embodied relations to what you're talking about. Um, and I think there's so much more scope to do something like this I think we're only just seeing the beginning of the marrying of art into ways of learning about the environment because of the ways that we have lost connection to the environment in kind of the 21st century.
1: Can I just add to that, one of the things that um we do in this book is not all the artworks are about fire but what we do is we read fire into them and so with the idea that fire is pervasive fire is everywhere um, and we can find it in these works and actually a lot of these works were not, were not ever made with fire in mind but we see them and we, we find fire And I guess that's how the the thing that we're pointing to, which is our bigger picture, is that as we write and make and think during the Anthropocene, we're going to find the Anthropocene in our images as well. So this was like one step, was we can find fire in our images. Um, Now we'll also be able to find the Anthropocene.
3: All right, we have a question from Catherine. And you're unmuted, Catherine.
1: Yes, sorry. I, in a way, I just wanted to go back to
2: a question I think. Thank you both. That was fantastic. Such a good project and
1: so really um, interesting. But I think I wanted to go back to a question that was asked before because um, I was interested in the way that
2: your thinking um, from your different disciplines actually challenged each other I mean, in what ways did you review what you were viewing because of the other, the other's input? I mean, did you have examples of that where you kind of went, that's so different from the way I think? Could you talk about that a little bit? I'm happy to start with that because I think that's probably the aspect I enjoyed the most about the collaboration was the way that in having conversations with Sue, whether that was in person or in writing on paper, is it opened up different sides to the, to the interviews that I have been conducting over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, Like Sue already mentioned uh, the garlic example, but there were other examples like from the Kosciuszko ranges um, of that massive 2003 Canberra um, firestorm that damaged and killed people in Canberra. And, And the participants there talk about this moonscape that they walk through. And I remember very explicitly when Sue first read that, her reactions to it were so different to what I had read into it. I focused very specifically on on the act of of doing, where Sue was looking at the act of engaging with the environment. So there was a particular example of this um, fungus that and lives in the crook of a tree and it only comes out when it's triggered by fire and so the participant is talking about this probably hasn't happened in a hundred years and suddenly this fire has triggered this fungus and it's there and so that led to all these other reflections about well what does it mean and mushrooms became quite a big part of the book in various chapters it kept coming up again and again But there were other examples, like when we sat at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in the archives there, and we would talk to the the artwork. So the Nimmo example that Sue included in her slide. In speaking together, looking at the photo, we realised that what we were individually seeing was completely different to each other. So I would automatically look at the path that I could see the fire had taken in that painting, where Sue was looking at completely different aspects of the painting and, and would explain to me the process of layering to create distance that provided so much more depth and understanding for the ways that the artist had actually engaged with the environment, where I would see fire very specifically, the ecology of fire.
1: There's always a, um, a great risk that both Christine and I were very alert to, that when you bring artworks into a project like this, they can very easily slip into being illustrations. And it was it was one of the big problems of the project for me, to kind of go straight there, was I was always terrified that the book would end up just sounding like Art History 101. Like, oh, look, there's blue in the background and there's this like this. And we were always um, resisting the resisting reducing our disciplines to their simplest, you know, and keeping the complexity of our disciplines kind of alive and going, so that we could um, sort of push the disciplines themselves as well as push each other. Does that make sense? It's like, I I think often when you have an interdisciplinary project, you kind of just go to the simplest. um, And we were both very keen to not do that. Um, To leave some things unexplained, perhaps. (laughs)
3: Well, I was wondering if you could comment a bit more about the choice of you of plants right so we've heard a lot about fire and, and yet there's there's plants right that play a role both uh the yams being plants the the uh tracks that are made as the fire goes through where the plants are burned um but how you feel the plants you know do they take a different role than say if you had chosen to talk about animals I mean, I know there's a number of people on the call, myself included, who do animals as, as a focus. What, what did plants bring to the, bring to the discussion for you?
1: Um, a really nice way of talking about the non-human without talking about animals. <laughs> um, would be my really quick answer. Um, but it was, it was fantastic to be able to work with plants and to really think about, um, very early on in the project, we drew a little triangle that's in the book. Um, which was about thinking about humans and fire and humans and plants and fire and plants and all of the different relationships that happened in this triangle and actually although we you know tonight we talked a lot about fire, I think most of the book is about the plants
2: it's interesting with plants we were in the in the conclusion we reflect on the ways that the different case studies and the ways fire and and plants specifically made us feel at various points. Like it wasn't always an easy book to write, particularly when you came to nuclear fire. I must admit, I shed a few tears writing that it was quite disturbing in all sorts of ways. But what was really interesting about the role of plants was it was often very soothing. So there was the grief and the grieving for what fire could do to plants. But there's incredible inspiration that you would gain from the way the environment bounces back, the regrowth. And I think that was really nurturing. It was a really nurturing thing to have. I feel very comfortable with fire because I've worked with it for so long, but it's not an easy element where something like vegetation and particularly and trees is incredibly nurturing. the the kind of the element that was the white elephant in the room pretty much all the way through the book was actually water. It it was constantly there, but it felt like it was just, it was going to require a whole book on its own to deal with it. And so we only kind of dealt with it in a few nods along the way. And that was probably the, the most unsatisfying part was we couldn't
0: find room to include water because it was always present. Tom, you have a question. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, it's great to, to hear more about this book, Sue and Christine. Um, mine's maybe a simple question, but I was just wondering if you could tell us more about um, alliance and the choice of that term in your title. Um, I guess it's got a bunch of different meanings that connect to ethics and politics, but also to ecology and, and other things. So uh, I just wondered what you were doing with that
4: term.
1: You want to go first? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So we ended up with alliances
2: instead of, say, relationships or um, more sterile terms because in alliances there can be both equity and inequity. There can be a balance and there can be a destabilizing of the relationship that goes into the alliance. And so it really fitted that kind of tri- triangle that when we're looking at the role of fire and plants and fire and people and people and plants, there was all these different ways that they would interact and interdepend on each other in all sorts of ways but they were never stable, they were never balanced, and fire usually always came out on top. And so it was this interesting way to create a dynamic discussion of different elements that would constantly interact and interdepend, but were never, never something that was a given.
1: I think um we came to the word alliances very early in the project and it was always the word that I understood the least as well, <laughs> um, which was kind of interesting. So it sat there and it was like, but I think the, the key thing was that it was the only word that um didn't easily balance things out. And so it was that it it was its destabilizing force that was really important to us. Um And the fact that it had these kind of resonances of an ethics of some kind um, and also a non-human ethics of some kind that I was really interested in that um, became, I don't know, it it still sort of sits there as the word that I don't know the the most about, you know, it's kind of the first word in the book and the one that I still find the hardest to explain, um, except for the fact that it became the word that we worked with
3: yes thank you um, i mean it's so hard to pick those words because sometimes well sometimes as you say not knowing what something is exactly is actually productive right it makes you work through uh that that word uh kate you had a question
2: yeah hi thank you and um thank you so much uh, donnie and Finana for hosting these book talks and uh, this is a book i'm really looking forward to getting my hands on um, i 've got a question about um, about the way in which the the, the fires of this, well, of, of the, the 21st century um, are, being, are being sort of read, if you like. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in your interviews, Christine. Over what period um, do, is your archive? And um, have you seen, uh, well, does it include, for example, um, interviews after the, the terrible uh, 2019 2020 fires? Um, and to what extent do you think um, that these 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 really mega fires um, are beginning to be seen as kind of warning calls, if you like, as as having a kind of signal of an anthropogenic, you know, kind of signal um, that that has implications for how we relate to to one another and and other others going forward. So I started doing interviews in Australia in late. 2007 and have been doing interviews um, pretty much ever since. Um, the, the interviews are with a range of um, people who have been in, impacted in various ways across Southeast Australia. So from Tasmania to um, Northern New South Wales. Um, and it includes interviews with people after the um, 2009 Black Saturday fires, um, long-term recovery by the 2003 Canberra firestorms, the Blue Mountains um, catastrophic fires in 2013. But it doesn't include as reasoned and as this catastrophic season that we've just been through for the simple reason that we submitted our manuscript for publication in September and then half of Australia burst into flames pretty much straight afterwards. So it felt... It felt like we were having these conversations um, when we got the manuscript for review. How do we write in that this has just happened since we submitted this publication? And what we decided on, we included a few comments in the the, um, acknowledgement, but really it just speaks to the relevance and the timeliness of the book because this isn't an issue that's going to go away. And so you speak to this kind of anthropogenic effect of the climate on fires. Well, fires are an endemic force in Australia. It's been around for much longer than humans have. And what has changed is the way that humans have engaged with plants and fire. And because of that, fires impact on Australians and the Australian environment and the built environment has changed, not least because we increasingly, as population growth has expanded into the bush, means that people increasingly live in high-risk areas for good reason. It's absolutely beautiful and so people choose to live there. I choose to live there. So it's, it's one of those um, interesting elements. I think what is happening though, particularly after this catastrophic fire summer we've just had, is that a growing awareness amongst Australians and internationally that the patterns that we know have changed. So it's no longer, there's a big fire coming, it's gonna hit and then it's gonna be over in a matter of days, at most maybe a week or two. That's changed since Black Saturday. We now know that these fires keep going and this summer has been the ultimate extent of that. And so understanding why that is, I think, is starting to dawn on people and actually realising that it makes a real difference how you live, where you live, and your footprint. Um, So the kind of the environmental history of fire and people and plants in Australia is just continually evolving into the future. And we are at a crossroad at the moment. And that's what makes this book so timely, I think, is that we're kind of grappling with something that we've had a relationship with it for a very long time, but it's slipping out of our hands at the moment. That's just a
3: a great way to show how relevant the work we do in environmental humanities is, in fact. And and we start projects, um, you know, because we see what's going on around us, And, you know, I I think what we're seeing right now is that a lot of things are coming out that are extremely well-timed, exactly for this reason, that these issues are only becoming more and more pressing. Um, I I had a comment in the chat from Emily O'Gorman about disciplinary alliances in the Anthropocene. And I think that's exactly what we see here um, between the two of you. Not only are you talking about the alliances between fire plants and people, but about the way we can have disciplinary alliances, um, that we can go across and really learn from each other and make something that's bigger, uh, mm-hmm. than either of us, you know, by yourself, uh, would be able to, uh, to come up with. Um, and so, I just want to thank everybody for being on uh, this uh, book talk today. And thank very much, thanks very much to Christine Erickson and Susan Ballard, um, who talked about their book, uh, Alliances and Anthropocene, Fire, Plants, and People. Um, I think it's extremely timely and a really great example of where environmental humanities can go. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you
1: so much for hosting us and giving us this space and time. And um, thank you all for coming. It's amazing to see people popping up. Um, And I just want to acknowledge some of the artists who are here as well. Like we couldn't have done this work without your work. Um, So, you know, thank you for being here as well.